Father in heaven, we come before your throne of grace once again. And Father, today we are grateful for your grace in our lives. You are a great God, just as we have sung. And Father, it is to you that we bow. It is to you, the sovereign one over all of creation, that we join our hearts together and cry unto you, casting our cares upon you. O oh, Father, on this day we pray that you, Lord, would grant to us peace in the midst of all that is happening in our country, in our lives, in our families. We pray, Father, for peace within our nation, that, Father, you would draw people into yourself, granting to them, Lord, the peace that transcends understanding. We pray, Father, that you, Lord, would show yourself to be faithful once again. And Father, I pray that we might see this time as a time of opportunity to share of the good news of who you are. That Father, even as many suffer from the pandemic, even as many suffer injustices, even as many suffer in their businesses, we pray, God, that they would turn their hearts to you, knowing that, Father, you will make all things right, that you are the healer of souls, that you are the one who draws all people to yourself, that you are the one who brings all comfort in the midst of chaos. And, Father, you are the one who is always and will be in control. Father, we pray to you, asking of these things, and we pray and ask that you would once again grant to us that peace in the midst of all that is so uncertain for the future. Lord, there are many who are hurting, many who are suffering. We pray, God, that you would turn our hearts and turn our eyes upon things that are eternal. And Father, may we see this once again as opportunities by which we might share the hope that we have within you. We pray, God, that you would continue to give comfort to those who have lost loved ones, give comfort to those who have lost businesses and income. We pray, Father, that there are those who are at risk of losing their jobs or have lost their jobs or have lost their businesses, God, may their trust be fully in you. And we ask God once again, provide for their needs. We are grateful, Father, that you are the one who will be faithful despite our own unfaithfulness. And Father, even as we look to you during this time of communion later on today, Lord, we proclaim the hope that we have in the death and the resurrection of your Son. May you be honored in all that is said and done. In Jesus' name, amen. If you turn in your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Mark, we continue our study in the book of Mark in the witnesses and the burial of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Mark, our scripture reading will come from Mark chapter 15, verse 39 through 47. 39 through 47. Mark chapter 15, verse 39 through 47. The text of the scriptures in the Gospel of Mark reads this way. 
when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way his, he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and Joses and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him, and there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph bought linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, were looking on to see where he was laid. We have been witnesses to things that we have not seen in well over a generation. A pandemic has swept across the world. Economies have been crushed, small businesses have had to close, unemployment is at levels not seen since World War II, and demonstrations fill major cities throughout the night, day after day, in America, as well as in London, in Paris, in Sydney, in Brisbane, in Seoul, in Tokyo. When with video footage, we have witnessed protests against the sins of racism, the sins of injustice, tragic deaths, and we are witnessing today things that are truly unprecedented. Some 2,000 years ago as well, there was a group of people who were also witnesses. They were witnesses to something that was not just going to happen in their generation, but once in the entire history of the world. They were witnesses to the greatest injustice in the world, and that would be the death of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And yet, even in unjust circumstances, in the death and the burial of the Lord Jesus, God's grace will be showcased, God's mercy will be displayed. And here in this particular section of text, we look at God's saving grace in three groups of people, in the faith of a Gentile, in the faithfulness of a group of women, and the faith of a Jew. This morning, we see God put on display his trophies of grace, and we see even in the face of injustice, God still saves. God still reaches out to those who were his enemies. God still reaches out to those who put his son to death. God still saves in the midst of injustice. God's mercy and his grace continue to be showcased. And this morning, we take you back again, as I mentioned, to the book of Mark, here in this gospel, which we began about a year and a half ago, and we've studied and looked at the travesty of justice that had happened to Jesus. We began when he was betrayed by Judas back in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And when he was abandoned by his closest disciples who had followed him for three years, we watched as the hypocrisy and the unjust trial of the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night, drumming up charges, false charges. We looked at the public denials of Peter time and time again in which Jesus would have perhaps overheard the enduring lies and the false testimonies against him being beaten and scourged as a result of a false, false accusation, the mockery of the soldiers who continued to blindfold him and spit in his face and mock him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who hit you? The torture of the crucifixion, the scorn of the criminals next to Jesus who hung on the cross, the bearing of sin upon the cross itself and the separation of fellowship which Jesus had always known from eternity past with his Father. All of these things Jesus endured so that he would die for sinners on the cross in their place as a sacrificial lamb so that we might have eternal life. We come to this time in this text in which it is 3 p.m. that Friday afternoon in which Jesus dies on the cross. When he dies, God's grace is displayed. First, in the faith of a Gentile. In the faith of a Gentile. And that is the first convert that we look at here. The very first convert after his death in verse 39. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him, it says in verse 39, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Now a centurion was a Roman officer who commanded a hundred soldiers. He was the leader of the soldiers who had beaten Jesus, who had mocked Jesus. He was leader of that group that was in charge of Jesus' scourging as well as his execution, their standing guard. He may have even been a part of that initial group that arrested Jesus that prior night. We don't know. But if he was, he would have seen Jesus, how Jesus held up during the trial, how Pilate had declared him innocent three times, and how he responded to Herod, how he responded to the Jews, how he responded to Pilate. He stood guard as people came by Jesus as he was hanging on the cross and mocked him and scorned him and how the robbers next to him continued to mock Jesus. Yet he would have been the one too. He would have been the one too who would have heard Jesus ask God the Father to forgive them for they do not know what they do. He would have been the one, too, who watched as one of the robbers next to him repented of his sins and Jesus promising him that he would be in paradise with him. He would have been the one, too, who heard Jesus in his victory cry, the proclamation of a victor, cry out to Telestai, it is finished. As the Lord cried those words out, and he saw the way he breathed his last as a recognition of Jesus' death. Jesus, the Son of God, who gave up his own life willingly, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus gave up his own spirit. He was the one who gave up his own life. He says so in, in John 10 to 18, in which he says, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. And the soldier cries these words. He says, truly this man was the son of God. 
Now, this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark, the first time in the Gospel of Mark that any human being proclaims these particular words in the Gospel of Mark. In the Gospel of Mark, it is proclaimed by God twice in 111 and 97. It is proclaimed twice by demons in 311 and 57. But the declaration that is made here is made first by a human being, by a Gentile, and not just any Gentile, by a Roman soldier. And that is significant. It is significant because here is a Roman soldier who says, truly, this man was the Son of God. Number one, by a Roman soldier because it was the Caesar, the Roman ruler who would adopt that particular phrase, calling himself the Son of God in the worship of the state cult in which they worshipped Caesar as a god. He would have adopted that title before a Roman soldier to imply this was the Son of God, not Caesar, was significant. And secondly, it would have been unimaginable, unimaginable for someone to say that this was the Son of God as they died. Why? James Edwards notes, quote, A crucified Messiah, Son of God, or God, must have seemed a contradiction in terms to anyone. Jew, Greek, Roman, or barbarian asked to believe such a claim, and it would certainly have been thought offensive and foolish. The fact that the passion and death of Jesus on the cross evoked the confession of the centurion indicates that he, by divine revelation, had been granted the mystery of faith in Jesus as the Son of God. In other words, a dead Messiah was no Messiah at all, and so it evokes this reaction that says, what in the world would he be saying? No one would ascribe to a Messiah that would be dying and die on the cross. That was no Savior. And yet here the centurion exclaims this phrase, truly this man was the Son of God. In the midst of all of this, he would utter that truth. And I think it was an expression, just as the commentator would say, an expression that God gave him and opened his eyes so that he might understand who Jesus was, the Son of God, the very first person whom God poured his grace out upon after Jesus' death. Secondly, not only do we see God's grace displayed in a Gentile, we see the faithfulness of a group of women, the faithfulness of a group of women. Verse 40, there were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the less and Joses and Salome. And while he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and John all record that Mary Magdalene was present at the crucifixion. And it says here there was also Mary, the mother of James the Less and Joses, and there was also Salome. And there was also one other Mary. Mary was a common name, by the way. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was also there. So you had three Marys who were there, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary, the mother of uh, James the Less and and, uh, and and Josie's, and then you had Mary Magdalene, and then you had Salome, and there were other women who were there as well, the text indicates. 
Now, I think that the Lord places this here just to highlight the faithfulness of these women. The faithfulness of these women who stuck with Jesus and was there at the cross, and it's highlighted here for us to realize that God showcases these women in their faith in Jesus and who he was. Whether it is Elizabeth in the, Old, in the New Testament, Anna or Ruth or Esther, there is a significant amount of text that tells us that these women were faithful. The disciples were nowhere to be found. They had run away, with the exception of maybe John who was there in the time when Jesus was there at the cross and he was uh, standing by and Jesus commits, commits his own mother to him. To them, it was a scene of horror and dismay, and yet they stood there listening perhaps to all who had come by in the incessant taunting of Jesus. They never left the scene to the bitter end. Historian Rodney Stark argues that one of the reasons why Christianity spread throughout the ancient world was due to its revolutionary new attitudes towards women. He says, quote, Recent objective evidence leaves no doubt that early Christian women did enjoy far greater equality with men than did their pagan and Jewish counterparts. A study of Christian burials in the catacombs under Rome, based on 3,733 cases, found that Christian women were nearly as likely as Christian men to be commemorated with lengthy inscriptions. This near equality in the commemoration of males and females is something that is peculiar to Christians and sets them apart from the non-Christian populations of the city. This was true not only of adults but also of children. As Christians lamented the loss of a daughter as much as that of a son, which was especially unusual compared with other religious groups in Rome, unquote. God's special trophies of grace included this group of women. And it was thanks, by the way, to Mary Magdalene who followed later on learning where the body of Jesus was going to be laid because she would show the disciples later on where he was laid. She took note of where it was, where his tomb was. Luke 23, 55 to 56 says, She and the other Mary began the preparations too. For the burial of Jesus and the spices before the Sabbath began, and even afterwards, after the Sabbath, they prepared still more spices in order to place on his body their faithfulness and their stability is shining brightly here as God showcases the faith of a Gentile. He showcases the faithfulness of these women. And lastly, he showcases the faith of a Jew. When it comes to the death and the burial of Jesus, it was not just some funeral for Jesus. The account recorded here highlights the faith of Joseph of Arimathea. Verse 42. When evening came, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up the courage, it says, and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now Mark Tarot tells us here that he came, he asked Pilate for the body. He had access to Pilate because he was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council that had uh, indicted and condemned Jesus. 
Joseph was a secret disciple, John 19, 38, and he had not consented to their decision and deed, Luke 23, 51, which was to condemn and ask for Jesus' death. He was a secret disciple who came, and he came, it says later on too, that he came together with Nicodemus who was going to help him. Nicodemus was also a ruler of the Jews, you recall, in John chapter 3. And they took the body of Jesus, bound it in strips of linen with spices, a custom which was for the Jews. And they put a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes, these scented spices on his body, these resins that were used in lieu of embalming. Jews didn't embalm, but what they did was they put these spices on Jesus in order to mitigate the smell as the body would decompose. And God uses this man this man, this Joseph of Arimathea. Arimathea is thought to be the modern-day city of Ramah, a few miles north of, of, of uh, Jerusalem, in order to fulfill prophecy, in order to fulfill prophecy. The Bible tells us that Joseph was a rich man. Only one who was wealthy would have their own tomb prepared. Only one who was wealthy would have one that was already set aside for him. If you entered a tomb in those days, the way that they would be laid out is there would be a tomb, and then there would be these slots in the tomb. These slots, these sort of holes in which you would slide the body in, or sometimes there would be a shelf in which you would place the body on, and you would have, of course, it wrapped, and there would be these spices, and what they would do is they would place these bodies into those slots or on the shelf, and it would decompose. And over time, over a long period of time, the body would decompose, leaving just the bones. And then they would take the bones and they would put them into a box called a bone box or an ossuary. Then it would be used again for other family members. That slot would be alleviated, would be used for other family members in the future. Now, when Joseph of Arimathea went to ask for the body of Christ, it was fairly uncommon because typically, Typically, the bodies that were uh, crucified would only be given to the family members. And even then, Rome did not always grant the request because Rome would want to make a, 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 an example of the individual who was crucified. And what they would do is Rome would want to publicly shame the individual. They wouldn't give the body to the family. They would publicly shame the individual by letting them languish on the cross for two or three days while they lived and then allow that body to just hang there for all the public to see in order that others might see and be warned, this is what happens to you when you oppose Rome. And then after that, they would take that body, especially bodies of a criminal, they would toss them into a garbage heap or they would toss them into an open mass grave. They would then be picked apart by scavengers and it would, again, be an example of what happens to someone when they oppose Rome. Jesus was crucified between two criminals and he ended up, and he would have ended up in some open grave or some heap of garbage had not Joseph stepped forward. And he did in fulfillment of prophecy. In Isaiah 53, 9, it tells us, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. No one would have known what that meant. Hundreds of years before the time that this was fulfilled, who would have known and understood what that would mean? 
that his grave was assigned with wicked men, and yet he was with a rich man in his death. God fulfills prophecy even through people who loved Jesus and was willing to put his faith. Here Joseph of Arimathea would step forward and he would put his faith above his fear. He would risk his own future because as Jesus was crucified and, G- and Jesus died on the cross, here somehow in some period of time, Joseph had become a disciple of Jesus, John nineteen thirty eight, a secret one for fear of the Jews. One author notes, but to have made his allegiance to Christ public not only would have cost him his place in the Sanhedrin, but would have jeopardized his economic, social, and family welfare as well. But his faith began really to emerge, as we see here in Mark 15, 43. He gathered up his courage. He went to Pilate. He asked for the body of Jesus. Here was a ranking member, a ranking member of the Sanhedrin, who became a disciple of Jesus. And it was a display of his genuine faith. I mean, it would have been one thing for a family member to ask for the body. That would have not shocked anybody. It would have been perhaps even understandable if the disciples came to ask for the body of Jesus. But here was a prominent member of the governing body that condemned Jesus. And when he asked the Pilate, it wasn't as if this was going to be in a, in a place in which Pilate was sort of a private asking. This likely would have been a place where there were others who were around, perhaps even the Jews. And if there were Jews that were there, other Jewish leaders who were still milling around because there was a whole 70 of them, 70 Jewish members of the Sanhedrin who would have been milling around with Pilate there, they would have seen Perhaps they would have even heard Joseph of Arimathea come and ask for the body of Jesus whom they had condemned death. It would have caused them to gasp in shock. Not only that, for a Jew to ask for the body, they would be touching a dead body and therefore defiling themselves and not be able to celebrate the Passover. Then, for him to give him his own tomb would have threatened his whole place within the structure of the Jewish leadership. It would have threatened his whole social standing. It would have threatened his family, his whole comfortable life, all for the sake of burying Jesus. Then he would have cleansed the body, the careful wrapping of the body. And obviously he didn't anticipate He didn't anticipate Jesus rising from the dead. So after Jesus arose from the dead, I'm sure there would have been perhaps some accusations about what he had done. Maybe there would have been suspicion as to whether or not Joseph of Arimathea was a part of the disappearance of Jesus' body. And yet Joseph's faith overcame his fear. He was publicly willing to risk everything in his declaration by his own actions in taking the body and receiving the body and saying, I am a disciple of Christ. This was the faith of a Jew on display. But when he asked for the body, Pilate didn't know whether or not Jesus was dead. Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. in the morning. 
He died at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. He was on the cross for six hours. That was much less than typical uh, individuals who were on the cross. Usually they would languish for two to three days and die thereafter. The robbers who were crucified with Jesus were still alive at the time of Jesus' death. But the Jews, as you note, they wanted Jesus' body off the cross because the Sabbath was coming. And Deuteronomy 21 says in 20, verse 22, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now the Jewish leaders, they were so meticulous in trying to follow follow the law, and yet not even realizing what they had done to already cross and kill the Son of God, they wanted Jesus' body off the cross before the Sabbath. Sabbath was a high day because it was the Passover Sabbath, and so they asked Pilate that the legs of those who were crucified would be broken so that they, the bodies might be taken down. They didn't care about their own hypocrisy, but they were asking that the legs would be broken. Now, there was a process. It was called the crurifragium, and it was done by the Romans in which they would take a large iron mallet and they would smash the femurs of the person on the cross. They would smash the legs of the person on the cross. Why? Because the person who was being crucified on the cross not only was languishing from their pierced hands and their pierced feet and the beating of that they would have taken, but in order to breathe, they would have had to push themselves up on the cross because their body would be hanging, their diaphragm would be compressed, they'd have a hard time breathing, so they would push themselves up with their feet so that they would be able to take a breath. But if their legs were crushed. They wouldn't be able to push themselves up. The additional bleeding, the pain and the shock, the diaphragm would be compressed. There would be a buildup of carbon dioxide and they would die of asphyxiation. So they came. They came, and it says in John 19, 32, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, verse 33, when they saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. When they came to Jesus, it was 3 p.m., he had already died, or after 3 p.m., he had already died, and there's a lot of views about what the blood and water was. Some believe it was because of a ruptured heart. Whatever it was, they knew he was dead. That underscores the death of Christ. I mean, the Romans were experts in people who had died. They knew when someone was dead. And the apostle John, in his gospel, underscores this idea that Jesus had died. John Verse 36 writes, For these things came to pass to fulfill the Scriptures. Not a bone of him shall be broken. It is in fulfillment of 
prophecy that Jesus' bones were not broken. In Psalm 34, verse 20, he keeps all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. And do you know what else? Secondly, in Numbers 9, 12 and Exodus 12, 46, the Passover lamb, the Passover lamb that was going to be sacrificed, not one bone of the Passover lamb was to be broken. Not only was this in fulfillment of prophecy, but Jesus was the Passover lamb for us who took our sins upon him and he was the one and not one of his bones was broken. In fulfillment of scripture that we might know that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus died in fulfillment of prophecy as our Passover lamb. The Roman soldiers had nothing to gain by somehow suggesting that Jesus didn't die as some would some would wonder. And so, Pilate found out that he was dead. He found out that he was dead. And once again, this whole idea that Jesus died, that Jesus died, undermines this false idea that swims around every so often, that rears its head, which is the swoon theory, which Jesus, some, some say Jesus didn't actually die. He, was, uh, he, was, he fainted out of exhaustion and that he was in shock and pain and the loss of blood and that when the disciples found him later, he was revived. It was a revived Jesus, a resuscitated Jesus. And this idea, this false idea had been floated around not only by the Da Vinci Code in Dan Brown's book, but it's also floated around by some Muslim scholars because they reject the death of Jesus on the cross. But Jesus died and the Romans confirmed that. Pilate gave the body to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen cloth. They wrapped him in that linen cloth. They took him and laid him in the tomb. As I mentioned before, they placed these spices on his body. They packed it so that the smell would not be so great. They rolled a stone against the entrance, a tomb that belonged to Joseph himself, and they closed that tomb, burying the dead body of Jesus. Even in the death and the burial of Jesus, God's grace is displayed. God's grace is displayed to a Roman soldier. God's grace is displayed as he displays his trophies of grace in these women who follow Jesus so very faithfully. God's grace is displayed even in this Jew in the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin that had condemned Jesus. You know, these days our entire world is really in a state of upheaval. And nearly every country in the world has been affected, whether it is because of the pandemic or whether it is because of the call for justice, the call against racism. It is good that there are people who are, for example, pursuing a vaccine for the pandemic. It is good that there are people who are pursuing the anti-discrimination reforms. That is much needed. Both are needed. But the greatest reform is the transformation of the heart when people turn from sin and they turn to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. As Paul tells the Corinthians, for I deliver to you of first importance, of greatest importance, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. 
of first importance that Paul wanted the message to be delivered was that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried for our sins, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So in the face of the greatest injustice, God continues to save even those who were his enemies. In the face of the greatest injustice, God continues to display his trophies of grace. And so too, we too have that as our primary, primary objective to deliver as a first importance that same message that that cure for sin, which brings about death to everyone, is the message of the gospel of first importance. Christ died for sins. He was buried and he was raised on the third day that we might have hope. And that is the hope that our world needs to hear. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks, Lord, for your word. We pray, Father, that you would help us, Lord, to see the pain and the hurt that is within our world, that, Father, you would help us to bring true hope, the message of grace, the message of the hope of your Son and the salvation for true reform that is lasting comes from the heart. When hearts turn to you away from sin and embrace Jesus, who lived and died and was resurrected, that we might have life, life everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen.